All righty, um, let's go. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, can I have the... Yeah, on, on here as well so I can see. Um, last week, you may have heard uh, that Queen Elizabeth had contracted COVID. And understandably, that made people pretty nervous. Uh, by the way, she's okay, apparently. But it, it made us nervous when we heard the news because while everyone loves Queen Elizabeth II, no one is that sure about her successors, right? Because... The British royal family, let's admit, is a mess. Uh, you've got Charles and Camilla and all that kind of stuff happened years ago. Have now Harry and Meghan, all but cut off from the family. Um, Prince Andrew and his shady sexual history. But actually, that, there's really nothing new because scandal has been part of this family for generations. The Queen's own uncle was king in 1936 when he abdicated, gave up his throne so he could marry a divorced woman. And then her own sister, Princess Margaret, when she was younger, had an affair with someone who was probably still married at the time. And then, of course, Princess Diana and Prince Charles both were committing adultery while married to each other. You see, the queen might be squeaky clean, but her family certainly isn't. Now, there's so many things that their family will probably just want erased out of history. It's what we call skeletons in the closet, skeletons in the family closet. And we all have them, don't we? Um, my family, there's a very close relative I won't name, but he basically destroyed his marriage, he destroyed his wife, constantly having affairs with mistresses and prostitutes, contracted sexually transmitted diseases. In my wife's family, multiple divorces, alcoholism, drugs. Uh, by the way, these are things that we never talk about at family gatherings and for good reasons. And you probably have a few of them as well in your family. So isn't it surprising that Jesus' family tree in the first chapter of the first gospel of the New Testament, it just lays it all out. It doesn't attempt to hide it at all. We'll see that when God became a man, he didn't make any attempt to hide the scandals and the skeletons. He chose exactly this family to be born into. Now why and why does it matter? Simply this, in a few verses time next week, we'll look at when Jesus is called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This is why God is with us. Very literally, God is with us in all of our messiness, in all of our brokenness. And he's not embarrassed or ashamed of all of our mess and to come and be our God, which is exactly the kind of God and King and Savior we need, isn't it? So let's pray and let's get into this passage. Father, we pray that as we look at a part of the Bible that I gather most people would not have ever heard a talk on, done a Bible study on, yet it is your word 100%. And in this passage, there's so many things that you want to say to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, follow the outlines. It's also on uh, the app if you want to use a digital outline. Matthew begins with a note of excitement. Now, I know you're thinking... Hang on there, this is not exciting at all. Apart from, you know, a couple of names kind of funny sounding. Well, look, there's a guy called Salmon. How cool is that? But um, uh, it's not exciting for us because we're not Jewish. And we're not a Jewish nation under oppression. And we're not a Jewish nation under oppression waiting for God's promises to come true where a king, a Messiah from the line of David would come and make everything right. That's not us, but for them, it would have been really, really, really exciting and really important if you're steeped in the Old Testament. And so let's have a look at these first verses. It begins with a bang, right? It says, a record of the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A record of the genealogy, literally, it's a book of the Genesis. It actually uses the word Genesis, which you know is the first book of the Bible, isn't it? Right, right at the beginning, it's an echo of the first book. It's almost like it's saying this is a new creation moment, a new Genesis. And then it says it's of Jesus Christ. Christ, you know, is not the surname of Jesus. It's a title. It means Messiah. It is God's chosen king over his people, over his world. It really does start off with a bang. But it also says this king has a family history. He's tied to promises that go back a thousand years to David and another thousand years to Abraham. So now we're going to turn to this family tree. So have a look there. Firstly, he's the son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Old Testament people of God, the Jews. Now, this is especially important when you remember Abraham comes in in Genesis chapter 12. But if you know a little bit about the first 11 chapters of Genesis and where it leaves off, you'll know how important God's promises to Abraham are. See, you start with Genesis 1, God creates the world. And then in chapter 3, the world falls into sin. And then we get for the rest of uh, this bit from Genesis 3 to 11, a spiraling problem of sin just getting worse and worse and worse. And then Genesis chapter 12 comes along, right? God promises to reverse all of the effects of the fall through this one man, Abraham, and the family that will come to him. That's how important these promises are. Abraham will be a father of a new line of humanity, like almost a new Adam, a new beginning. So son of Abraham is saying Jesus is, is from that line. He's the fulfillment of that promise of God to undo all that's been broken. And then next he's the son of David. David is the next big figure, big name in Israel's history. And he also gets big promises linked to his offspring and descendants. Now this time it has to do with a line of kings who will bring God's perfect rule and reestablish God's perfect world. Right? Jesus is descended from David. He is the promised son of David who will rule the world like this, the king that the world needs. Now, we don't have kings around, especially in a, in a, in a country like Australia, but I think we all know that our world is in serious need of good leaders, right? Good heads of governments. And how obvious it is now where you've got two people, one who is bent on war, and then the other, Ukraine's President Zelensky, who over the last few months has shown such spirit and such um, great leadership, refused to be evacuated. The U.S. offered to evacuate him and his family. He says, no, I will stay on the ground to fight. Right? Good leadership is so important. Um, our comfort and peace in Australia makes us forget just how important good government and leaders are. I think a little glimpse of that was, is with the COVID response. You had different premiers saying different things. And, you know, at different times, I think we could weigh out who did the better thing, right? We need good leaders. We need good governments. Well, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, means that he is the perfect government. He is the perfect governor, the perfect ruler, the perfect king. He is the one that our world needs. See, we need the perfect king, and he is here, Jesus. Okay, son of Israel. Now, that's not as obvious, but I want you to note there was a structural marker in this genealogy. 
Um, I'm not as brave as Hamish. I'm not going to read through those verses and the names. Let me just skip over to verse 17. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Okay, so it's dividing into three key time periods of Israel's history. 14 from Abraham to David, which is the first major period. 14 from David to the exile, the second major period. 14 from the exile to Jesus, the third one. Now we know from comparing Matthew with Luke's genealogy of Jesus that um, they're actually slightly different. Matthew, especially, we know, wasn't trying to follow a literal person-by-person family tree. He was doing a pick-and-choose, highlighting significant figures in order to make a point. Now, what is he trying to highlight? I think it's simply this, that Jesus is Israel. You got that? That Jesus is Israel embodied. And this is a point you'll actually make again and again. We'll actually see it even next week. That Jesus is the Israel that Israel should have been but never was. Now, just an aside, why 14? Um, It could be 14 is like 2 times 7. 7 is the perfect number sort of thing. Um, could just be a nice organizational principle, but probably it's because um, in, in Jewish uh, names, right, each name you can actually assign a numerical value to. You could do that with your name in, in the English alphabet. Take all of the um, vowels out and just have the consonants, track which number in the, um, the alphabet your consonant of your name is, and then add them together. That's the numerical value of your name. They did that with the name David, and guess what? The name David has a numerical value of? 14. Right? Now, if this is the case, which, you know, good, good chance it is, then what is Matthew trying to say, organizing it in terms of 14s? It's trying to say Jesus is thoroughly the son of David. Right? He is thoroughly the king from David's line. Even the numbers in his family tree match up with the name of David. Pretty cool, huh? Now, I don't know if you remember, 10 years ago, something incredible happened in the NBA basketball world. And it was called Linsanity. Who remembers Linsanity? Yeah, 10 years now. For a few weeks, in February 2012, literally about 10 years ago, Jeremy Lin was the talk of the sporting world. So February 4th, he came off the bench. He was a bench warmer um, for the New York Knicks. And he came off the bench. He scored 25 points, 7 assists. And he helped New York get a, win a game after they'd had a terrible season. Two nights later, he scored 28 points, 8 assists. And they beat the Jazz. Two nights after that, another win. And then the next game against Kobe Bryant and the Lakers, he scored 38 points and won the game. And then the next game after that, Jeremy Lin incredibly shot the game-winning three-pointer on the buzzer against Toronto. Okay, so for one glorious month, it was really good to be Asian. Do you remember that? Linsanity was everywhere. This was before... Crazy Rich Asians before Shang-Chi, you know, before Asian representation like that we have now. It was really good to be Asian because Jeremy Lin's glory was our glory if you're Asian, right? It felt good to be lifted by his success and share in his glory. You see, we read this genealogy and it may not seem that important to us, but if you are a member of God's family, it matters, tremendously, because here Jesus' story is your story. His family is my family. You see, what we learn from here is actually part of our spiritual identity. If you are a spiritual child of Abraham, and all followers of Jesus are, 
If you are adopted children of God, this is your story. He is your Messiah. He is your King. He's your Jeremy Lin. See, when this is your family and you start reading yourself into this family tree, you see that God's faithfulness is stamped everywhere. 2,000 years of promises fulfilled. When you see this, it tells you a lot about you. It tells you that your personal story is the story of the world, in fact. Creation, sin, redemption, hope. Yes, it's on a big world scale, but it's also in our own lives. God made us. We've sinned against God. God redeems us. We have hope, right? The world story is your story. It tells you that you belong. You belong to a spiritual family that goes right back, that is worldwide, and ultimately one that belongs to Jesus. This is your story. And it also tells you, my next point, that your messiness and my brokenness doesn't break the promises of God. So let's go there. Point number two. You see, Jesus is descended from kings. He's also descended from what we'll call for the four shady ladies. See, Matthew unashamedly mixes glory with shame. Any other ancient biographer would not write this way about their hero, but Matthew does. Did you notice four names? Verse 3, Tamar. Verses, verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, the wife of Uriah. These are really significant little entries into Jesus' family tree. They have all of this in common. Number one, they were all women. And guess what? In a very patriarchal world, women simply did not make the genealogies of anyone's family tree at the time. All right, This was a society, by the way, where Jewish men woke up and prayed, thank you, I wasn't born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Secondly, they were all foreigners. They were all Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were both Canaanites. Ruth was from Moab, a Moabite. The wife of Uriah was probably a Hittite because Uriah was a Hittite. And this is in Jesus' family tree. Jesus, who's supposed to embody Israel, the Jewishness. In Harry Potter terms, Jesus was a mudblood, right? Number three, all of them were scandalous, especially when it came to their sexual histories. None of these women would have made your dinner conversations because of the kind of sexual histories they had. Um, let me just quickly run through them. We won't have time to look them up. Tamar, right, in Genesis, um, she dressed up as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law Judah to sleep with her. Why? Because her husband died and they were childless and Judah was supposed to take responsibility to help her. He didn't. So she dresses up as a prostitute to sleep with her own father-in-law. That's pretty scandalous, yeah? Rahab, we did Joshua last. You remember Rahab? She helped the Israelite spies when they were spying on the city of Jericho. She hid them, right? And she gets saved. Only, you remember what Rahab was? She was a prostitute as well. The reason the spies might have been with her, well, you know, only we can guess, okay? That's Rahab. Ruth. Ruth probably comes out the cleanest in, in, out of the four. Um, but let me tell you about Ruth. She follows her mother-in-law's instruction to get a new husband, Boaz, who was a relative of her dead husband, because she's a widow, a widow. Sorry. The account says that in order to do this, she lays at Boaz's feet after he gets drunk at a party and uncovers his feet. Now, we're not sure what that means, but I can tell you now that in the Old Testament, when a woman goes to a drunk man in the middle of the night, 
it's always been scandalous. Ruth doesn't do anything that bad, but the whole context would have been quite scandalous given other occurrences of women going into drunk men in the middle of the night, okay? That's Ruth. The wife of Uriah, number four, she doesn't even get a name. Well, she doesn't get called by a name. We know her name. Her name is Bathsheba. Sound familiar? The cause of David's great downfall. He's watching her bath naked. Then he sleeps with her while her husband is out fighting for David. She gets pregnant. David has to arrange for her husband to get killed, accidentally killed, in order to marry her. Okay, you, you got it, right? You got the picture? These are Jesus's ancestors, these scandalous foreign women. We can perhaps add one more to the list, right? Possibly a fifth. Mary. Yeah, do you notice verse 16 has a really roundabout way of putting it. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says Joseph was the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus. Why? Well, you know the Christmas story. Jesus had an earthly father, sorry, earthly mother, but didn't have an earthly father. Mary was pregnant before Joseph and Mary could even get married. All right, Mary didn't do anything wrong, of course, but you see the cloud of illegitimately born would have always hung around Jesus, yeah? And I think that's why Mary was included. More of that next week. So how, how can we summarize this? You see, Jesus... His family tree shows that he is racially impure. He's born of adultery and murder. He's conceived under suspicious circumstances. If you read the tabloids, the headline would be something like, religious founder is a child of, a Gentile, of Gentile women with sordid sexual histories, himself born out of wedlock. That would have been the kind of thing that hung around Jesus if you knew his family tree. Even one of these things would have been absolutely jaw-droppingly scandalous, but you put four or possibly five? Why? Why do this? Why, if you're Jesus' first biographer, would you write this in? Well, remember, Jesus' story is our story. That's why. This shows us that in Jesus... That God isn't ashamed to call sinful humanity His family. It shows us that God is with us in all of our brokenness and sordidness and shame. And He doesn't save us from our sins from far away. No, no, He came to be amongst sinners, though He Himself never sinned. And He will be so committed to the broken that He will actually go to the cross to bear our sin in our place and die the death that we deserve as sinners. See, Jesus' family history tells us that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, nothing disqualifies you from being able to join this family. Yeah? So one more thought before I end. If Jesus isn't afraid of exposing messiness... I wonder why we are so afraid. Because, let's admit it, church is often the place to hide your brokenness. I remember the song lyrics of a song by a band called Casting Crowns, and it goes like this. I, I'll read it for you. 
Is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls? Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I play the part again so everyone will see me the way that I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness, the smiles to hide our pain? But if the invitation's open to every heart that has been broken, maybe then we can close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade. The church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So friends, this year as you do life together, are you going to hide or come as you are, support and love one another in our collective messiness and then experience a deeper grace that comes when we follow a king like Jesus. If you're not part of a community group and a men's and women's triplet, you're really missing out. But if you are, then can I urge you to make the most of it? Because just being a part of a group doesn't necessarily make it like that. So make the most of it. Now these groups are not places to hide, but places where love and grace can come into areas of brokenness and pain. Now I'm not saying you have to share everything to everyone, but will you take a chance? Be real to one or two people and see what happens. Because that's the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Not the king of the perfect, but the king of the broken. And you can see that so evidently in his family tree. Let's pray. I'll get the band up and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we admit that we are messy, broken. We are the Tamars and the Rahabs. We are the Ruths and the Bathshebas and we are the Marys. Thank you that you chose to identify with us. Thank you that you were born of this family line. Thank you that we get to be part of this family. And so we pray and I pray that this year as we walk together in this community called SWEC, that you would help us not to find reasons to hide, but to take steps to share the brokenness, to support one another, to love and to experience the grace that comes from you, Jesus, our King. Amen.